Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We're disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. My name is Aaron, lead pastor. I get to preach today. I'm so glad that you joined us. How great is that? We're continuing our, our series in the book of Acts, and we're getting close to the very end. Isn't it amazing, the series that we've been taking all the way through? We see the story of the church, how it's grown and overcome, uh, and has grown from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now into the ends of the earth. How encouraging that is, that then the enemy attacks, the Lord prevails. How awesome is that? Well, uh, I've been impressed, but how, uh, even though the story is millennia old, it's still so relevant Right? The world has been crazy for a long time, and our God has been good for a really long time. And one of the things we're talking about today is how we speak truth to power. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I believe that our world today is, seems to lack um, respect and honor. I, I saw a troubling video just a few days ago of some police officers being doused with water by the people they're supposed to protect. And that deeply bothered me. Here's folks that are out there trying to help them, protect them, and they're being, you know, just have buckets thrown at them and things like this. And, and it, let me know, like, where we are in our culture is we've gone beyond a place of respecting authority to almost despising authority. I think about when you turn on the news or things like this, the talking heads, the disrespect that is often leveled at people from an opposite political party, whatever side they, they don't like, the level of disrespect, not just attacking policies, but attacking persons. Or I, I love, I have my coffice downtown where I do most of my work. Where I get to meet people out in the, the world and sitting there and how often I hear folks disrespecting their bosses, their employers, their employees, their spouses. Uh, we live in an era of, of disrespect but, uh, and dishonor. But I think it's amazing how, as, in, as Christians, we have a different culture. Like, our God is, is a God who is, as very nature, He is an honorable God. I mean, think about it, when Jesus even prayed to the Father, He says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know what that means? May your name be honored and kept being honored. That's what that means. Like just at his very nature, we begin with the fact that there is honor out there and the one on the throne is honorable. And we begin with that approach as we talk to God. But that same God who is honorable and good has honored us. I was his enemy. I was a rebel of the kingdom. And instead of giving me the... The condemnation that I deserve, my God took my sin. He took those filthy rags and he replaced them with robes of white. He received me back, not as a slave, but as a son. He's given me position in his kingdom and the right to represent him in this world. And access to himself in his own throne room. At any point, a place that even the angels themselves don't dare to touch the floor or look at him with their eyes. He says, you can come on in and talk to me any point. Honor. Received honor. We can live a life of honor. And that needs to be reflected in how, how we interact with those in this world, including those in authority, 
to those that have more influence than other people. But oftentimes we notice that those that have authority in this world sometimes don't act honorable. Have you noticed that? Sometimes people in authority are corrupt. Sometimes they're morons. Right? How is it that those of us who are in Christ, who have received all of the blessings and have been given this great title and privilege in Christ, can go and to honor dishonorable people in a position that, if we were being honest, would say they don't really deserve? That can be hard, isn't it? Today we see in the story of Paul how it can be done and how it can be done powerfully. We learn how to influence those that are the influencers. We'll discover how we speak truth to power. But first, let's review our memory verse for this series. For those of you who are new with us today, a special welcome. I'm glad that you guys are here. What we do is every week for every series, we have a memory verse of something in the Scripture that we begin to memorize and apply into our life. And if you're here today, we welcome you to join on in with that. It's fantastic. The power of God, when it applies to our life, that begins to change us. And the passage for this series is Acts 20, 24, which the Apostle Paul, these are a quote of the Apostle Paul, as he was speaking to this group of elders, Ephesian elders. When he was on his way back to Jerusalem, when he knew things were going to go south for him there, this is his, his parting words with them, and it's something that I think demonstrates the level of maturity that we can shoot for to attain in Christ. And so if you're new with us, I encourage you just to say it along with us a few times. If you've been here the whole series, I hope that this is starting to really stick and starting to make a difference in, in your character and in your life. So here you go. Just say it along with me. Three, two, one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Throughout the week, remind yourself of the powerful truths that are in this word. It's, it's, it's really great. Okay, now that we have that, let's get into the rest of the word of God. So if you have your Bibles, please join me in Acts chapter 25. Now, we're going to be going through two chapters today, but don't worry the same length of sermon because I love you. But the reason I did, yeah, the reason I did that is because there's one story that happens in these two chapters, and so it's important for us to, to hear them together. And so in Acts chapter 25, what do we find ourselves in? Well, we find the apostle Paul. He is in prison in a palace. Right, which is not that bad of a place to be, but he was still in prison. He couldn't leave, right? And so for those of us that went to Israel, you were actually there. You got to go and see the prison that Paul was at. It was under the ground. They had like this manhole type thing, and they would lower the prisoner, Paul, down into there, and that's where he lived for two years. And they would pull him out so he could walk around the palace and do things. And we also got to walk into the very room where Paul gave the speech and the defense that we will, we will see today. Um, it was a beautiful seaside area called Caesarea. I was the headquarters of the Romans in that region, and uh, Paul was there on trial because some people made an accusation that Paul brought a Gentile into the Temple Mount, even though there was no evidence to that, even though Paul was actually doing something the opposite of what they were claiming he was doing. They brought some false charges against him because they knew that uh, as a Roman citizen, they couldn't execute Paul unless he violated that one law. If you violated the law of bringing a Gentile, if you dishonored the temple, brought a Gentile into the temple area, that by Roman law, the Jewish people could execute him. 
And so that's why they tried to frame Paul for this. Of course, there was no evidence to that for Fest, uh, um, Felix, the governor, twice. And so he had three trials on this, all three times uh, declared innocent, couldn't find anything wrong with him. And yet we find him still after two years in that prison because Felix wanted Paul to give him a bribe. And Paul wouldn't do it. So there he is still in prison after two years. And then Felix, that really lousy governor who did so many awful things, find a new governor who comes in. And so that's where we begin. And uh, starting in verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 1, I'm going to begin there. And it says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So you have the new governor in town. He's getting the lay of the land. Unlike uh, Felix, Festus was, uh, demonstrated a lot more wisdom. And the culture, his, his reign was actually pretty decent, although the damage done under Felix was already done and the seeds of revolt were already there. And so a few years later, we find the Roman-Jewish war begins because of uh, all of that. So Festus, even though he did a good job, it, it was, uh, there was some difficult things already happening. He shows up and uh, remember Caesarea is, is their Roman headquarters, but Jerusalem is where obviously was the kind of the central city of the province where he was over. And so he wants to go up to Jerusalem and he meets with the, the chief leaders that were there. It's interesting enough that after two years, what was on these leaders' minds? Let's kill Paul. Even though Paul was innocent, even in their own Sanhedrin, they couldn't... They couldn't uh, they said half of them were like, he's totally innocent, let him go, even though there's no evidence that he had done anything wrong, right? For two years, they had allowed this man to rot in prison unjustly, but that wasn't enough for them. Those that were in authority, their corruption was such that they had this bitterness in their heart, and they said, we're going to kill Paul. Isn't it interesting how the human heart is? That when we get angry, we get mad, somehow we begin to just fixate on our own vindictiveness. And we see that in the world, don't we? Yeah, vengeance has a long memory. You would think they wouldn't even think about Paul. He was stuck in a palace. But instead, what do they want? What is their favor they wanted this new governor? Give us Paul. He had the audacity to make them uncomfortable. But here's a new leader. He goes in and he hears this. And so we see the very beginning, he's exercising some decent judgment. He knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to bring Paul up to Jerusalem, so they're going to ambush him. He's going to responsibility before these guys. He says, no, 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 we're not going to subvert the judicial system. We're going to go down and the trial the court is supposed to be in Caesarea. That's where the Roman citizen, that's where a Roman citizen should be tried. That's where Paul is. That's where we're going to do the trial. So come on down. And uh, he promises justice if justice is warranted. So it starts out pretty good, and you think, oh, a regime change. Things will go better for Paul. Oh, that doesn't how it happens. See, the, 
the Romans or the, uh, the Jewish leaders, of course, send down their lawyers again. They bring all these people down. In verses 6 through 12, you can read about it. They bring the same old charges against Paul, same baseless charges that have been around from the, that, that kept Paul in prison all this time that there was no evidence for. They bring them again. And then Paul, of course, brings his same defense that he'd brought all of those times before because it seemed to be working, right? He kept saying, there's no evidence of this. I am innocent. And so it's the same old trial once again. I'm sure Paul was thinking, okay, I'll be found innocent and I'll be out of here by noon, right? Well, read verse 9 because it doesn't work that way sometimes. In verse 9 it says, uh, Festus was wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial for me, uh, before me there on these charges? There was corruption. After hearing Paul, after doing everything right, he asked Paul, would you do me a favor and die? Which is basically what he's asking. Hey, you know, I want to get on the good side of these religious leaders. With me as a, as a guy, new guy coming into town, I want to be on the good side of Jerusalem, right? Politically, it's important for us to be good. That'll make me look good before the Roman emperor, all that kind of stuff. It'll make things go smoother. If Paul, if you would just, you know, ignore the fact that you're already at court, and just pretend, and, and, and your accusers are at court, and we're having court right now. If you could pretend that this didn't happen, would you just go up to Jerusalem and, and, uh, and let us try you there? And everybody knew what was going to happen to Paul if he went there. Corruption was there. Paul had his, uh, his day in court, and even the court system now with this new leader was showing signs of favoritism for his accusers. And how convenient it would have been for Festus to have Paul eliminated on the road. Problem solved. The Jewish leaders love me. This guy's out of my house. He's not living there anymore. A good way to start. Felix had a lot of power, but Paul was going to have none of this type of corruption anymore. Realizing the corruption, Paul makes the following defense. I'm already at court. Right? I'm already in the place I'm supposed to be. So let's have trial now, like we are. What's the purpose of going to Jerusalem? I'm already in court. The second one, and by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. I should be having court here in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem, as a Roman citizen. This is where I'm supposed to be. Right? And he also says, listen, uh, you don't have the right to, to transfer me. Right? I'm here. I'm being tried in a Roman court of law. If I'm not guilty of things, you don't have the right to send me anywhere. You don't have the right to, to, to uh, convict me of these things. You don't have the right to move me. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Right? He also says, if I'm guilty, I'll gladly die. I will gladly pay the punishment. I'm not about subverting justice. And in another way of saying, and I would hope as a judge you wouldn't be either. And so then Paul, he applies his rights. He says, therefore, I appeal to Caesar. Now, that would be like a, one of our citizens appealing to the Supreme Court. And the, under Roman law, if there was a Roman citizen that felt they weren't getting justice, they had the right to appeal to be seen by the top guy himself, Caesar, who at that time just happened to be a little known emperor named Nero, which everybody loves. Most citizens would never appeal to this because if you appeal to Caesar and it's a trivial matter and the Caesar doesn't think it's important enough, he would have you executed for wasting his time. It was also a risk 
Because if you went before Caesar, much like our Supreme Court, they have the ability to kind of legislate, right? They can interpret the laws or make the law however he wanted to. So you might go up there and legally you could be in the perfect thing, but, but Caesar just doesn't like your face. He'd be like, new law, you die. And there is no appeal to that. And so it's a pretty big deal to appeal to Caesar. And so Paul does. He appeals to Caesar. And once he does appeal to Caesar, now he's protected by the Roman government. As a citizen, he has appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, he has to go. Festus couldn't execute him, couldn't put him in jail. He couldn't send him to any other trial. The next trial had to be before Caesar, and the Romans were in charge of now protecting him until he got there. Paul knew his rights, and he wasn't mean about it. He just applied his rights. And so he appeals to Caesar, and he gets sent there. All right. So once he appeals to Caesar, now Festus has an issue, doesn't he? Because he just shows up in a new area, and his very first trial goes so far south, it gets appealed to the top dog, right? He's saying, I'm going to send this guy to Caesar, and I have no idea what he's even guilty of. It's basically uh, one of the citizens of where he's supposed to rule, basically saying, I voted no confidence in your ability to judge. My very first trial <laughs> is being appealed. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, you have Festus is thinking, well, if I have to send him to Caesar, I have to have a good reason of why we've held him captive for two years, a Roman citizen, why we've denied him his rights for two years. I mean, he's got to come up with something quick. He's got to bring some charges. You can't send Paul to Caesar with no charges. If you do, then the government, though the officials that were there, would be held responsible for holding this Roman citizen against the law. And so... You have a, a crisis for Festus. Now, this blew up in a way he didn't expect it to. And so he's thinking, we got to find something to pin on Paul. So when I send him to Caesar, Caesar won't come back at us and say, what on earth are you doing? And so what does he do? He calls up King Agrippa II. King Agrippa II was the son of King Agrippa I. There you go. King Agrippa I was the last king of Jerusalem that was actually a Jew. The Jewish people loved him, right? He did some things. Agrippa I, was, he was not part of the Jewish society or anything like that. He, he spent a lot of time in Rome and everything there, but he knew how to play politics really well. And he was close with one of the emperors. The emperor got into power. It was King Agrippa I that stood up to that emperor when the emperor said, we're going to put a statue of Zeus in all of the worship temples all throughout the Roman Empire. And King Agrippa I stood up to him and said, you can't do that in the Jewish tem uh, temple. Trust me, it's not going to go well. And he listened to King Agrippa I, and because of that, the Jewish people loved King Agrippa I. And he knew how to play that. He put on all of the right kinds of clothes and he went to all the festivals and he brought his own sacrifices into the temple at just the right times and he looked like a really good religious Jew. But he also had these palaces that were scattered about in which he had the most godless Syria, right? Where he ended up actually executing one of, a couple of his, his family members, right? Right there just because he didn't like him. I mean, he was two-faced, he was a bad politician, and the thing was is that the people loved him, and he was, a, he was a Jewish king of the Jewish people. But remember the story back in Acts 13. The same guy, King Agrippa I, 
killed, martyred James, tried to martyr Peter. He went back up to Caesarea, and the people there worshipped him as a god. And so God said to one of his angels, Hi, why don't you give him some worms? And he did, and the worms ate him from the inside out, which is probably lousy for him, but funny for us. And so he dies. That's King Agrippa I. His son, while his dad was doing all this and dying from worms and all that bit, his son, King Agrippa II, up in Rome, living the lifestyle with the hoity-toities, right, doing all the fun stuff, learning how to spend lots of money as a good politician should, right, money he didn't have. And because he was immature and young, when King Agrippa I died, Rome said, we're not going to make you the king of Jerusalem like your father. Well, he said, uh, you're too young, so we're going to give you some governorships. We're going to try you out to see how things go. And King Agrippa II started to charge money on his creditors, and eventually he owed them a lot more than he had, and they kind of chased him out of Rome, and he started working in Syria and some other places, and winds up, of course, where his dad had finally been, down in Jerusalem area, right? And that's where he uh, gets set up. But, he, but again, he didn't have the best track record of being an awesome governor, and so he was appointed as the, the chief of the temple, right? So his job now was to be the politician over the temple mount. That's the area that he got to rule. And he learned from his dad. He acted religious on the outside. He made the Jewish people feel like he was one of them, right? He did all of the Jewish things, knew all of the customs, knew all the rituals and did all that stuff. And yet, in his own private life, when he was away from there, man, he was as corrupt as they come. He just knew how to play the populace, thought the normal person were just idiots and played them like a violin. That's how he worked. So when Festus has the prisoner Paul appeal to Caesar for a crime that was committed in the Temple Mount, who do you think Festus calls? Agrippa. Why is this guy in my house? What'd he do? And he brings on there. Now, if you're keeping track now, we have, this is his fifth trial. Five times we tried for something he didn't do. And this one is not for being found guilty. This trial was only for them to create charges so they can send them Paul to Rome with, so to kind of cover themselves. Paul had nothing to gain from this trial. He calls down Agrippa and down into there and, uh, and says, okay, uh, tell us your story, Paul. <laughs> Why are you here? Well, Paul understood his, uh, his situation. Right? Paul understood exactly why he was there. He didn't need to give a legal defense. He'd already done that four other times. So instead, Paul addresses these men that had a great amount of authority and a great amount of power, and he shares his testimony, testifying to the good news of God's grace. And uh, it's a powerful story. We see how Paul uses the opportunity, how he speaks truth to power in a really uh, fantastic way. Not as a way that oftentimes we think of as Christians either being doormats before authority or as being just obnoxious. He was neither. And he had the ability to present the gospel with grace and truth and power to these men who were very influential, even over his own people. How did he do it? Well, there are a couple of truths that I think we pick out of this passage, and four of them, in fact, and then we'll talk about some application, how we apply it into our life. 
The first thing we see that Paul does, he speaks to the power, is he honors the position. Honors the position. This is important. Whenever we speak to those that are in power, recognize that they may not be honorable people themselves. Right? Festus was flirting with corruption. Even though he, overall he was a fairly decent governor, he wasn't awesome. He certainly was not a Christian or a saint by any stretch. But uh, even though he was somewhat decent, he was flirting with corruption. He wanted Paul to go up to Jerusalem so he could die. He wanted to do political favors. He wanted to subvert the judicial system. He was acting dishonorably. And Herod, don't let me start on Herod. That guy's awful. Six years after this event, Herod, the leader of the Temple Mount, the one that all the people loved and all this, when, when the Jewish people went to war six years later against the Romans, Herod stabbed them in the back, abandoned them, gave away all their positions and things like this, made sure that they were going to be pretty much utterly destroyed. Herod was not an honorable person. He was a slime bag. And yet, even though Paul was underneath these dishonorable men who acted dishonorably, and Paul was there for two and even Paul had to do this final trial because even Festus wasn't acting honorably and being corrupt, you don't see this apostle attack them. He honors them. I think it's amazing. I mean, if we just lined those three guys up, right? Who here is named Festus or Agrippa? It's a horrible name. We name our cats Festus and Agrippa, don't we? But even 2,000 years later, we'll name our sons Paul, won't we? Paul was by far the most righteous man in the room. The most honorable of all of them. And yet Paul sees these men and addresses them and provides them honor because of the position that they have. He even calls at one point most excellent Felix right? or Festus, right? He provides honor. And that's though, he also, even though he provides honor, notice he doesn't provide false flattery, which I think is dishonoring, right? And notice how like all of the trials before that, the Jewish lawyers provided all that great flattery that they would say, oh, you're the best leader that we've ever had, right? Now, Paul doesn't do that. Look at chapter 26, verses 2 and 3, how Paul addresses these guys. He says, uh, after Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak, Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He didn't say that he was a good Jew. He said you know about these things. And that was true, wasn't it? Even though he was a two-faced liar... He knew the customs. He knew how to do the church speak. He knew all the history and all that stuff. And Paul says, great, then you'll understand the history of what I'm about to say. He speaks the truth. He, doesn't, he provides honor without going into the part of, of flattery. That takes practice. Second thing we find Paul do is he's stuck with what he knew. This is important. We've got to stick with what we know. Paul didn't assume other people's motives. Right? Paul didn't say, the reason I'm here is because Felix wouldn't accept a bribe, because he was conniving and he was greedy. The reason I had to appeal to Caesar is because you want to do some backwards uh, deal, right? Then, that uh, you want me to go up and get killed because you're corrupt. He didn't say any of that, although it was just 
say that. He didn't assume their motives. And think how important that is. What good does it do you when you're talking to somebody and then you assign motives to them? As even if it seems very, very clear, the reality is they can always deny it. And what value is it turning your authority into your adversary? And so Paul doesn't assign motives to them. He doesn't say, I know why you're doing what you're doing. Everybody does, you corrupt person. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't assassinate their character either. It's not a good idea if you're speaking to an authority to say, you're an idiot. You're an evil person. You know, you're awful and bad. You're, you shouldn't be in your office. None of that is helpful. Paul doesn't do this. He gives him honor. Paul only, the only thing Paul shared was the thing that he could stick with. He, he shared what he knew. He told his testimony. Because even the authorities couldn't uh, deny those things. Paul simply says, I am here. Let me tell you why I'm really here, guys. I was just like the rest of all of the rest of the Jews, the ones that are trying to kill me now. In fact, I was just like them because I believed it was right. And with a clear conscience and a good heart, I went out and I persecuted people that are Christians. I did awful things to them in the name of doing righteousness. I wasn't perfect. But on my way in doing this, I was going up to, to Damascus to export my, my reign of terror, righteous terror, and God knocked me off my donkey and blinded me so I could actually see who he really was. And I met the Messiah. I talked to him face to face. And it kind of changed my life a little bit. And I spent three years and I was in the church and with the Lord and learning and understanding how he fits into scripture and squares with that. And after that, I was commissioned by God to share the good news that God saves even Gentiles. Now, could Festus or Felix or Herod, or anybody else feel threatened by Paul's message? It had to do with Paul. Paul's just saying, you want to know why I'm here, why I'm different, what happened to me? How did I go from being this, this terrorist, religious terrorist, to a person who stands before you now? <laughs> you want to know the, what the change in my life was? I'll tell you. He doesn't accuse them, say, well, you know, if God loved you, he would have knocked you off your donkey a long time ago. Obviously, he loves me more. He didn't say anything like that. He just shared his testimony. I think it's important when we speak to those in authority that we not project. We don't project upon them. We stick with what we know. I think the other thing that he does is he appeals to reason. Paul doesn't just appeal to emotion. He doesn't make an emotional appeal. He doesn't appeal to guilt or anything like that. He appeals to reason. Look at chapter 26, verse 24 through 26 be the very bottom of your page. And it says, right there, it says, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. So that wasn't a lot of honor he was receiving from the judge. And this is how Paul responds. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with all of these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was, done, it was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Paul begins with reason to defend the gospel and defend himself. I think it's amazing. It, it, Paul had the perfect opportunity, right, uh, to just assault this guy's character. 
Paul, one of the greatest intellectual minds of human history, right? Think about the impact that Paul has had in the world, right? Intellectual giant. And you have this, this clown in there, right? You have Festus in there saying, you're crazy, you're too smart. And Paul could say, yes, I am too smart. I'm smarter than you. And if you wanted to stop being so dumb, you could listen to me. How about that? He could have said it. But he didn't. He didn't say, you know what? You're you want to live in ignorance, then I should just be quiet. He didn't say any of that. What Paul does, instead of assaulting and, and, and just uh, retaliating, he appeals to the reason of this, this uh, leader. He said, listen, everything I'm claiming is public knowledge. Everything. And the king that's sitting next to you, Agrippa, knows all about this. Jesus' death and resurrection didn't happen in a corner. It was kind of a big deal. Right, The whole city was out there, killed Jesus, and then they did. And they're like, guard the tomb, and they did. And then three days later, like, oop, thousands and thousands of Jews were coming to Christ. And the temple steps, those of you who were in, in Jerusalem, you saw the, the mikvahs, the places where they baptized thousands of Christians, right there at the foot of the temple. This was not a quiet thing. And Jesus walked around the city for 40 days. Now, here I am. You killed me, but I'm back. Everybody knew this. That's why so many Jewish people in Jerusalem, the most anti-Christian city in the world at the time, because they killed the Christ, in that place had the, on day one coming to Jesus and more every day. This was not a secret thing. And he says, listen, I'm not telling you some kind of weird, strange, you know, controversy that, that uh, people will talk about and say, well, that was a crazy, loony story you have. He's like, no, the king will know all about all of these things. He appeals to reason, and he does it in a respectful way. And I think Paul was able to do that because he trusted the truth, even in an age that truth was questioned. When Jesus was being crucified, and he was brought before Pontius Pilate, well, Pilate's question is, what is truth? I mean, he was in a society at the time that the Roman world was a society very similar today. They're like, what is truth? Isn't it just what you make up or what do you believe? That was a very similar climate than we are today, isn't it? Where people create your own truths. But Paul knew that truth is real. In fact, there is reality. I think we can all agree to that. You don't have to believe in a Chrysler for one to run you down in the street and kill you. Right? I mean, reality is reality. Even if we don't understand it, we don't agree with it, it's still there. Which is why we look both ways before we cross the street. Because my reality might say that there, you know, there's a clean path, but in but if the reality reality says there's a car coming at me, my reality doesn't matter. The reality is something that just exists. It's subjective. It's there, and it affects us. And truth is whatever reflects reality correctly, and it's helpful. It's like opening your eyes and seeing the world as it truly is so you don't stumble around all over the place. Paul understood that there is God, and he is real, and that we exist, and there's real, and there's a moral law that's real. He trusts it, and he knows the history that he lived, his own testimony, was real. It actually happened, and he trusted it. And so he didn't have to, to make up other things. He just trusted that reality is there. Truth is real. And so he just told truth as it is, and he trusted it. And I think because of that, Paul didn't have to make it personal. Paul didn't have to say to these guys, you're corrupt, and that's why I'm here, and you're awful. He didn't say, you know, your whole system is, is uh, hooey. He didn't say, make it personal at all. He just said, this is the truth. This is why I'm here. What are you going to do about it? All right. 
Last thing I think we see from this is we talk to authority. Paul does something really well is he is honest. Honest. Look at verse 26, uh, um, chapter 26, verses 8, 28 and 29. After Paul appeals to reason and does all of those things, look what Agrippa says. Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or day may become what I am except for these chains. Paul didn't hide his motive. Paul knew he wasn't on trial for his legal thing. He knew he had to go stand before Caesar anyway. He didn't have to bring a legal defense. Why are you sharing, Paul? Oh, the reason I'm sharing is because I want you also to receive the forgiveness and the freedom that I have. He didn't hide it. He wasn't conniving Christianity. He was straight up. He was open what his motives are. And I think that's the way we honor those in authority, right? We were just honest with them. Didn't hide his motives. And that he was open. He was humble. I'm not better than you. I just have something that I I think might be beneficial for you. And I would hope that you'd listen. How do you apply these things? Right? Because we're going to have opportunity, aren't we? Hopefully, we'll have opportunity to influence the influencers. With the opportunity to speak truth to those that have power. We need to make sure that we're ready to do that when the time comes. Right? How do we do that? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to practice humility. Practice it. Right, it, the thing is, like, I'm, I coach football, right? So, like, I got home really late last night because they had a, a scrimmage near Kansas. I have no earthly idea, and it was at night. It started at like at six o'clock. Who thought of that? But anyway, we were out there, and some really good things happened. I think we have a decent team this year, but we, but there was some stuff that we learned that maybe we weren't practicing right because you play like you practice. You can't bring your A game to the game unless you bring your A game every day, right? We would default back to what we've always done when, you know, when the time really comes. So what we teach our boys is you play like you practice. You want to play with excellence, you practice with excellence. You're going to play mediocre, you're going to you're practice mediocre, then you're going to play mediocre. That's how it goes. Now I'll say this, that if we want to be ready to speak truth to power, we have to practice the right things. And the first one is humility. Humility is not thinking badly of ourselves at all. It's just having the right view of ourselves. And how does Paul define his own humility? I consider my life worth nothing to me. That doesn't mean that he feels he's nothing. He knows he's a child of God, that Jesus died for him, saved him again. He knows he's a saint. He writes about all those things. He says, listen, my life is Christ, right? I am, I am made for forever. Like my true home is coming, right? I got a house that's going to knock your socks off. It'd be fantastic. That's what I'm living for. But here today, what am I? I'm a saint. Right? I'm the one that's supposed to be separated, set apart, to live for God. I am an ambassador. I am the one that's supposed to present God's gospel. That's why I'm here right now. Other than that, God would zap me out of here. Just the moment I'm done doing my job, boom, I'm out. But if I'm here, I'm on task. So my life is in a much better place of coming. So I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, there's a reason I'm here. I've, I live with purpose. He understood who he truly is. If you're a child of God, you live forever. You have real purpose in life, real meaning, and you can trust God with everything else. So I think we begin with, we have to practice humility. To begin with, why are you here? Are you here just to make your life better? This life? This life ain't going to last, but eternal life will. We have opportunity today to make a difference. So when we practice humility, having that right view of ourselves, I think it also has a right view of our situation. Knowing that God is sovereign is not an excuse for Christians to put our head in the sand. Look at Paul. He knew his situation. 
for four times he was on trial for his life. And what did he bring four times? A legal defense. But this time, he was not on trial for his life. They were just trying to pin something on him. So what does he bring? The gospel. He knew his situation. He knew when to speak what truths to the power, to those in authority. I think for those of us, we have to understand the situations that we live with. And not every single situation requires the same response. We're supposed to be smart, wise. And Paul was humble enough not to believe that the world had to bend around him what was convenient for him. He recognized that God said, I want you to go into the world and to to bend a knee to me in that world. I want you to go and serve people when they're brokenness. I want you to care for those that aren't going to care for you back. Paul had to be aware of the situation so that he could be aware of the opportunities. But I'll tell you, my brothers and sisters, there are opportunities around us all the time. You are here to be God's disciple, Christ's disciple, His workmanship that declares the glory of God. You are here to testify to His good news. That's why you are here. You're here to expand the kingdom. And God's not going to keep you here if He doesn't provide opportunities for you. But to understand the opportunities, I have to stop looking at me because the opportunity isn't to share the gospel with me. I'm already fine. I already received the gospel. I already have the Holy Spirit. I already have forgiveness. I already have hope. Paul had to see what the situation was so he could see the opportunities that were before him. And in this situation, his opportunity was to speak the gospel to some guys who really deeply needed it, some guys that had a lot of influence and a lot of power. Think of this. We practice humility. If we practice humility when the time comes to be humble, we're not going to stand up and say something stupid because we practiced it. If you can't be humble with one another, what makes you think that you're going to be humble before a corrupt person with power? We have to practice it every day. The second thing, we've got to practice honor. We live in an, in an age of dishonorable people doing this, this. We have to practice caring for others. What is honor? It's respecting the value of another person. That's what it is. Respecting the value of them. Part of their value as a person is their title, their position, their ability. Part of it is that they're a, a human being made in the image of a creator God. If for no other reason we respect them with that, but we have to honor one another. If I can't honor you and you can't honor me, what makes us think that we're going to be able to honor those that are corrupt in the world? And so we have to practice that. We have to practice honoring authority even if the person in authority is an honorable person. That's why when we go to court, we say, your honor. Even if we think that person is a corrupt, awful person. Right? We begin practicing honoring each other. And so you can do that, practice honoring those in your family, your children. Honor your parents. Obey them. The word of God says that you live pure and good lives that grow up and have effectiveness. How great is that? But to honor them, treat them with respect and obedience. How about parents? Can you honor your children? Not treat them as your little slaves, right? To provide for them, care for them, mentor them, lay down your lives for them, right? Treat them as a way that they can understand how the, the Father God loves and cares for them. Can you honor your children that way? Husbands, can you honor your wives? Live with her in an understanding way, protect her, provide for her, lay your life down for her the way the Lord told you to because of her incredible position as your wife? Can you do that? Wives, can you honor your husbands? Helping them, praying for them, supporting them, giving them deference for the position that they have in your life? Can you practice that? If you can't honor the people in your family, how on earth are we going to honor those that are outside of our family? Can we honor one another? Practice it. We honor each other with our words and with our actions. And the last part is here is we can, we can practice honesty. 
We live in a world of spin, don't we? Everything's sold to us every day. Ideas, products, everything. I think the thing is, is that it's human nature to spin things to make us in a good light. The great thing in Christ is I can step out of that crazy shadow and I can be real as I am because God has accepted me and forgiven me exactly as I am. He knows my faults. He's already says forgiven and he says, I will transform you. <laughs> I will change you. Just, just follow me. I don't have to put a spin around Aaron. Aaron wasn't awesome, but God saved me anyhow. I think we have to say is that truth actually is there. We're supposed to be the light of the world. <laughs> Not people spinning things to make us look better. Jesus makes me look better. That's, that's pretty awesome, right? He begins to transform me from the inside out. But I don't have to, like, spin things. I know that God's ultimately in control. The person. He starts off by saying, I was doing the very thing. I was part of that group that's doing this corrupt thing. I was part of that. And more than that, I was kind of a leader in it. And I was going to murder people in the name of my God. And I did. So, as far as the history of judgment, I didn't do great. But let me tell you what God did. I think we have to resist spin. When you speak to somebody with influence, trust the truth. If you're going to them with something that's good and helpful and beneficial for them, you don't have to spin it. Just speak the truth the way it should be in love. But I think in this, we have to resist the urge then to overspeak. Overspeaking is this, when I'm going to project onto another person, you know, their ideas or their character or something else. Sometimes, like Paul could have said to, to, to Festus, he could have said, you're as corrupt as the guy before you. He could have projected. Didn't need to. Then we have to say, we're not here to project. We're not here to say, I'm going to tell you what your motives are. If anything, as Christians, we're supposed to assign somebody else, trust, give them the benefit of the doubt. And that really does help us. Paul didn't say to, to Herod, your dad was corrupt and awful, and I think that you're awful. He said, I know that you know the religious way. And so I'm glad to talk to you about these laws. I'm going to assign you the benefit of the doubt that you're going to want to see justice. Even if everything in your history makes me doubt that, I'm going to assign to you, I'm, going to, I'm not going to tell you you're corrupt. I think it's important that we have to not overspeak, but also we have to not underspeak. There are those of us who hate conflict. I'm one of them. And the idea of underspeaking is not to speak the truth in love when the time comes. Because it makes us uncomfortable, it might make us look bad. Paul was able to share the gospel with these two powerful men who needed it deeply. He wasn't afraid to say what you're saying or what you're believing is not true about me. And even when Agrippa said, hey, Paul, you're crazy, he didn't say, I guess you're right, whatever. He, right? he wasn't a doormat. He said, no, nah, this is all reasonable, rational stuff. I know who I am. I own my space. and I'm going to tell you the truth. You see, if we're always projecting on others, then we lose the right to be able to speak when it's necessary. It's like the whole boy that called wolf type thing. So if you're going to speak, make sure that you make it count. So speak to the things that truly matter. And then that stick with what you know. Right? Paul told his testimony. You know exactly what he saw. If he didn't project into other areas and stuff like that, that's not helpful. Stuck with what he knew. That's practicing honesty. And we have to practice that with one another, don't we? Every single day. Because we live in a life that rewards the spin. We should be different. It's not about us being liked, and it's not about us doing all these other things that protect ourselves or self-preservation. It is about the good news of God's grace. And there's a fourth, last one in there that I didn't put it. We have to trust God in this, don't we? We have to trust the Lord. Isn't he sovereign? I understand, even if I speak truth to authority and it's rejected just as it was with Paul, didn't God still work here? I tell you, 
throughout history, the thousands of years, through these passages that you're going to read this week, these two chapters, thousands of people have found salvation in Jesus because of Paul's testimony. Trust truth in the gospel. Trust God is at work in it. And yeah, sometimes as a Christian, you're going to suffer not in spite of, not in spite of the, you know, your uh, righteousness, but because of it. Sometimes it's because we stand with God. It's because Paul chose not to be corrupt and not offer a bribe. Because Paul chose to stand with Jesus and not get wishy-washy with the gospel. It's because of those things he was standing trial. And he faced the, a trial before Caesar. To understand, Jesus said, yeah, that's going to happen. In this world, you're going to suffer. You're going to face trial. Jesus said, when it comes, don't freak out. He's going to be there with you. And he will. He'll help you make the most of the opportunity. And if you have to suffer for righteousness, he said, I'm going to make it more than worth your while, so throw a party. It's like winning the heavenly lottery. And so someday when we get to heaven, those of you who have had the opportunity to speak truth to power and it wasn't received right, there's going to be some type of something huge for you. It's going to be awesome. And we're all going to be there and be like, man, I wish that happened to me. We won't say that now, but know that it's coming. So we need to trust the Lord. He is at work in all of this, and he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. He can remove King Agrippa the first, and he could have removed King Agrippa the second if he wanted to, anytime, any way he wanted to. And it's the same God that is in power today. So if you have opportunity to influence the influencer, you have opportunity to speak to power, how do we do it? Well, we did a lot of things today we, uh, we talked about. The first one, we have to honor their position. Begin with that. Stick with what you know. Appeal to reason. And finally, we got this. Just be honest. And this, know that God is at work, and he has the power to transform ourselves and our community as he gives us opportunity to speak with those who influence others. All right? So for you, how do you apply that to your life? Because there is application, by the way. We're supposed to be ready. All of us be ready in season, out of season, to give it a, a defense for the truth that we have. All of us. How are you going to be ready for that time? Well, we have to begin practicing today. So you need to start applying, to begin practicing these things so that God will then, as he provides us the opportunity, we will be ready. And doesn't the world need an influence of Christ? So let us be ready. So if you have your connection card, I invite you to take it out. Look on the backside. There's some steps for you here today that we can all do together that will help us prepare. So the first thing that we might want to do is memorize Acts 20.24. I have told you through this series how this particular passage has been working in my life, transforming me, helping prepare me so I will be a different person, more humble and ready and more focused on what I'm supposed to do. That's the power of God's word. I invite you, spend some time in God's word doing that. Maybe what you would need to do is read Acts chapter 25 and 26. I didn't read much of it today because there's two chapters and it's only one sermon. So go through and read it this week. You want to see how a righteous person can speak truth to power? Read about it. This is a great example for us to follow. Also, read this. Maybe you pray for our leaders. In Scripture, it tells us we're supposed to do that, even those that are corrupt. Right? Paul, he was talking about pray for those that are over you. He's talking about Nero. He was a pretty corrupt dude. We need to begin praying for those that have authority. And yes, that's our political leaders. It's also our social leaders. How about those that are running social media or those that are in charge of, of uh, movies and TV shows and all those other things? Can we begin praying for the social leaders? How about the Hollywood stars and things like this? Don't they need Jesus? Can we begin praying for transformation for the professors and those in charge of the schools? Can we begin praying for them? 
Can you pray for the leaders of our community, of our society? There is a power of God to transform lives and hearts, but we have to invite him. Can you do that? But then can you also pray for our local leaders? How about for your elders and pastors? We could use it. Today, we're meeting. After this, we're going to talk about the, what we've been fasting and praying this week, getting ready for it. But what is God's plan for our church as we move ahead? Not just this year, but in a few years out. What is God doing? Can you pray for us? The last thing this church needs is us in charge. We need Jesus in charge. Can you pray that God will do that? We're willing. Or how about for you? Maybe this week, this is the time you say, you know what, I'm going to start practicing these things. Intentionally start practicing the stuff we talked about. Practicing humility. I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's a great passage to quote as you're learning humility, isn't it? How about honor? Honoring one another. Practicing it. You're not going to get it perfect at first. That's why we practice. But begin practicing. Say, I'm going to intentionally start practicing honor. Or how about this? I'm going to practice honesty. I'm going to start saying things as they truly are, resisting the spin, not over-speaking, not under-speaking so that God can prepare you to be one that's able to speak truth to power. Whatever commitment you've had, I also include, ask you to also write down any prayer requests you have to this week. I pray for you. We, leaders get to pray for you every week. It's an honor to do that if we know how to, even better. In just a minute, we're going to take our offering. I invite you, as the offering baskets are passed, you take your offering envelope, put that in there with your tithes and your gifts. Take this connection card. Please prop, drop it in the offering basket and uh, know that we will be privilege to support you this week as you grow as a disciple of Jesus. Now, as the band comes out and you prepare for our, our offering and our commitments, would you uh, let me bless you? We continue to close this time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, that we were dishonorable, we dishonored you, and yet you honored us greatly. Jesus came and died for us, for our sins, rose again to give us the hope and the promise and the assurance of eternal life, that we are saved by your grace, through our faith, simply in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, that is just amazing. That good news will never get old. And Father, based upon that good news, help us as, as your disciples in this valley prepare us so that we can speak that good news, the, the, the good news of your grace to those that influence our culture so that the kingdom of God can grow, so that those who live in darkness can be set free, that those who live in and sadness and depression and addiction, Father, that they could find the transformation of Jesus. Father, help us, transform us into good spokespeople for you. Lord, I pray that you would take this time, these commitments that we've made today, that you would help us to apply them in our life in such a way that it does bring about that interchange. And Lord, we also pray for the tithes and the offerings that we bring you as well, that they would be used according to your will to build your kingdom for your glory. And we lift all of these things to you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.